Earlier today, I mentioned how whenever I heard the phrase right effort, I would tense up with the assumption that it meant grim determination to go into battle with all of my so-called defilements, to use the traditional language. But later on, as I started to read the actual texts that these teachings come from, I discovered the Buddha's actual definition of what he meant by right effort. And I learned that it was a lot more subtle and nuanced than this English phrase, right effort, might convey. So in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is what we're exploring here, right or wise effort is specifically about working with mind states. It's about learning how to shift the balance of our minds from predominantly unwholesome or unskillful mental qualities, such as greed and hatred and delusion, and then all of their variations of craving and anger and anxiety and fear and jealousy and resentment and shame and so on, shifting away from those to predominantly wholesome or skillful mental qualities, such as mindfulness, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, interest, calm, concentration, clarity, generosity, wisdom, and so on. So rather than being a simple binary of right effort and wrong effort, the Buddha's definition of right effort actually has four aspects to it. And in summary, the first effort is the effort to prevent unskillful mental qualities from coming up in the first place. So that's the first effort to try to prevent harmful states coming up. But the Buddha was a realist, so he knew that at times, in spite of that effort, those unskillful mental states might sneak in. So the second aspect of right effort is to make the effort to abandon unskillful states that have come up, that have arisen. And then the third aspect shifts to the positive side, and it's about helping skillful states to arise. And then when we've managed that, the fourth aspect of right effort is to help those skillful states to stick around, or in the actual words of the discourse, to maintain wholesome states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. And as these wholesome mental states start to become more and more the default setting, and as they get stronger, the amount of effort that we need to maintain them becomes less and less. So in some ways, this fourth effort becomes paradoxically the effort of no effort. So at this stage of the practice, the effort needs to be really refined, and the best thing we can do is to keep getting out of the way. 
and not judge ourselves when there are those times when we get caught in striving of some kind. Because how we find balance is by knowing when we're off balance to one side or the other. So it's a bit like riding a bike. Remember when you first learned to ride a bike and you would crash off to one side and then you'd crash off to the other side. But even the most experienced bike rider, a Tour de France rider, is making micro wobbles in order to stay upright. And with experience, it takes a lot less effort to do that. Even becoming at times what in the Zen tradition they refer to as effortless effort, which is the culmination of right or wise effort. So you might get a sense then that right effort is progressive. We start by working to prevent unskillful mental states from coming up. If they do come up, we learn how to let them go. Then as the mind becomes increasingly free of these difficult states, there's almost literally more room in the mind for the skillful states to arise. And then we learn how to maintain, prolong and deepen them. And I wanted to highlight this more progressive and um, perhaps more active engagement with the practice because sometimes in the way mindfulness is taught in some settings, there's an emphasis on just being with your experience. So it can come across as being very passive. Don't try to change what's happening anyway. Just be with it, be with it be with it. And while it's true that this is the first stage of mindfulness practice, as we understand with right effort, the Buddha was quite emphatic that it takes effort to abandon painful mental states and to cultivate skillful, beneficial ones. And he gave us a whole set of meditation techniques that help to do that that help to install these more beneficial qualities, specifically the four Brahma-Vihara meditations. So I just want to check, is everybody familiar, at least with the cultivation of metta, of kindness? Anybody never done any metta practice before? Great. So metta is the first of these four Brahma-Vihara qualities. Then there's compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity or balance of mind. And these are very skillful states of mind that we can actively develop through our meditation practice. And they work as very powerful antidotes, not only to painful mind states, but also they're very useful at those times when perhaps our insight practice might be feeling a bit dry or stale. So because you're all familiar with metta, this afternoon I'd like to highlight the third of these four practices, which is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy. I prefer appreciative joy because it brings in that flavor of gratitude. So it's this one I'd like to highlight now. And as a very basic definition to begin with, Mudita is the capacity to feel happiness or gladness. 
And traditionally, in insight meditation circles, it's taught as happiness for someone else's happiness. And I'll say more about that soon. But for now, we can think of it as the ability to, to, to take delight in another person's good fortune. And in the early teachings from the time of the Buddha, it was often translated as just simple gladness, gladness or appreciation. And there is a connection between mudita and metta. So metta, kindness, is really that foundational quality of goodwill, of friendliness, of benevolence. And when this basic attitude of metta, of goodwill, turns towards what's going well, it naturally flowers as mudita, gladness. So there's a direct relationship between metta and mudita. And sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and mudita? So I'm going to start by using animals as an example, because in some ways our relationship to animals is more straightforward than for many of us it is with people. So if we think of metta as simple goodwill, it might be just that basic warmth that occurs when you see a friendly dog, or if you're more of a cat person, how the heart responds when you see a cat. There's just a basic feeling of warmth. And perhaps, as we were hearing earlier, you might pat the dog or stroke the cat. Now, think of that dog sitting in a car, going for a ride with its owner and sticking its head out of the window. You might imagine that dog with a great big smile on its face and the breeze is blowing all its fur back and it's absolutely delighted. Even if you haven't seen that live, you might have seen YouTube videos or images of that dog. Do you feel a sense of delight for that dog's delight? If you touch into that now, that's a little bit in the terrain of mudita. Or perhaps if you're more of a cat person, when the cat rolls over and you stroke its belly and it starts to purr, you might almost feel a purring in your own being as a vibration with the cat's happiness or joy. When it comes to feeling it in relation to other human beings, though, or perhaps at times for ourselves, it's not always so straightforward. And just to say that for some people, they can feel quite uncomfortable even hearing the word joy. So for myself, being brought up in the north of England with parents from the north of England, joy was not part of my vocabulary until fairly recently. So it's a quality that I've learned and had to train in. So... As I started to pay attention to joy, I started to realize that it's not just my own individual challenges that were making it difficult, but our society as a whole tends to dismiss or devalue joy, especially these days. You know, if you ask the average person, how are you doing? How are you? How's things? What's the most common thing they say in response? In my experiences, busy, 
How are you? Oh, busy. Yeah, busy. Imagine if they said joyous. What a different society we'd be living in. But at the moment, if someone, if we ask someone, how are you? And they said joyous, you might think they were a bit weird, some kind of hippie dropout. Because we're so focused on being productive and achieving and attaining. So there are many different biases against joy. And even within the Dharma world. So when I started to get interested in mudita as a practice, I had a sense that uh, of the four Brahma-viharas, mudita is kind of the poor cousin. It tends to be the one we hear the least about. So I wanted to see if my perception was true or not, and I actually checked on Dharma Seed, where all of the insight recordings are, and I found 165 pages of talks on metta, 125 pages on compassion, 68 pages on equanimity, and 18 on mudita. So translating, if there are 10 talks on each page, only about 180 talks out of 30,000. Not many. So perhaps part of that lack of interest in mudita might be even particularly at a time like this, that it can seem perhaps naive or maybe even just ridiculous to even consider cultivating joy when our survival as a species is under threat. And every day we're exposed to pretty terrible news in the world out there, in our own communities, in our families. There are so many different forms of social injustice and oppression and divisiveness and the climate crisis. So we can easily fall into despair and legitimately ask, well, how is it even possible to be cultivating joy? And, you know, I can't answer that for any of you, but in terms of my own practice, I've come to appreciate that it's precisely because there's so much suffering in the world that I've needed to make the effort to turn towards non-suffering towards gladness or joy in order to restore myself so that I can face into life's challenges with greater resilience and strength and skill. So you can hear that throughout all of these qualities there's this theme of balance and there's a particular relationship between compassion and mudita. So the capacity to cultivate appreciative joy is the antidote to sorrow. So at those times when we might be feeling overwhelmed with the sorrows of the world, we can train ourselves to consciously orient to what's going well in our lives or others' lives. So as they say in the Taoist tradition, we learn to appreciate the full spectrum of life, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And even in the most difficult circumstances, if we make the effort to look, we can often find something to appreciate or feel grateful for. It might not be a full-blown sense of joy, but it might at least start to perforate the cloud of misery that might have been building. 
So a few years ago, I was when I was volunteering in a prison in Massachusetts, we decided to do a, a series of talks and meditations on these four Brahma Vihara qualities. And it made sense to me to bring in the first two of kindness and compassion. But when it came to mudita, I was feeling a bit hesitant. At that point, I hadn't been going into the prison for very long, so I didn't know the men too well. And I realized afterwards that I had underestimated what they were capable of. So at that point, I had a kind of an intellectual assumption that it might be almost cruel to ask guys inside to be finding things about their lives to appreciate. But when I first introduced the practice, it brought this really engaged discussion and the men were almost competing with each other to name things in their lives that they felt gratitude for. And the whole rest of the session was just filled with example after example of aspects of prison life that they appreciated. So, for example, one man talked about feeling grateful for having socks because he'd been living on the street and he didn't have any socks for a long time. Another guy talked about the joy of being able to feed a squirrel that used to come to his windowsill every morning. Someone else talked about what happened when he was assigned to a different bunk. So he was given a top bunk, and at first he was annoyed, thinking it was going to be a drag to have to climb up there every night. But he said when he got up there the first night, he realized that the bunk was against a window, and the lower half of the window had bars against it, but the upper half didn't. So he said he could lie in bed at night and look through this unobstructed window and feel free, forget that he was actually inside. So when I was hearing all of this for myself, I felt inspired by how easily the men could find things to appreciate about their lives. And it helped me not to take things for granted in my own life. And as with all of these Brahma-Vihara practices, these are trainings. And appreciative joy, just like the others, does get easier with practice. The more we can tune into what's going well in our own lives, the easier it is to appreciate what's going well for other people too. And instead of operating from a kind of poverty mentality or a sense of lack, we start to move into a sense of abundance, of openness. But again, at first this can be challenging because with our dominant approach to individualism and competitiveness, it's not always easy to take joy in others' good fortune. And sometimes even the idea of cultivating joy can feel threatening. Because it's true that in some ways it requires us to feel vulnerable. Joy can be taken away. In fact, it will definitely go and when it goes, we might experience a sense of loss. So for some of us, we have this conditioning not to allow ourselves to feel joy as a kind of preemptive protection from feeling its loss. The danger with that approach, though, is that over time, the heart becomes less and less resilient 
more and more defended. But one of the benefits of practicing mudita is that we get used to joy coming and going. We don't have to hold on to it when it arises or grieve it when it goes. So we develop a natural resilience and we become more, we become more responsive to the same joy in others too. So as the Dalai Lama has famously pointed out, if we have the capacity to feel happy for another's happiness, then our chances of happiness increase by 7 billion, which is the approximate number of people on the planet right now. So how do we actually do mudita as a practice? Traditionally, it's similar to metta practice where we recite uh, phrases and the traditional phrases are things like, may your happiness and joy continue. May they never leave you. May they grow. And traditionally, we start with someone we're close to who's enjoying some good fortune. Then we go to a benefactor, then a neutral person, then a so-called difficult person, and then all beings. So you might have noticed there was one category left out in that sequence. Anybody notice who was left out? Yeah, oneself, yes. And traditionally, mudita has been taught as being joy for the other person's happiness. And so in that traditional sequence, we're instructed not to work with ourselves. And when I first heard this many years ago, I thought that was strange because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings, we're told to make no distinction between self and other. So I did some research and found out that this word mudita means simply gladness and that it was only later in the tradition that this sequence and the idea of not offering it gladness for oneself came into being. So for myself, I like to begin by taking joy in our own good fortune and by consciously tuning in, as we were doing earlier, to what's pleasant in our experience. And this can be a very powerful way of opening up the heart to then experience mudita for others. So that's what I'd like to have us explore in some formal mudita practice now. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.